this petal of the tulip has been called many things. Um, the, classic the classic descriptive or label is irresistible grace. And there's nothing wrong with that label, but it could mislead, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Whatever descriptive you want to use for this fourth point, and this fourth point, again, features what God does, this is, whatever descriptive you want to use, we need to understand this monumental truth about the salvation, that God, in His infinite grace, has provided to weak sinners like you and me, turning us from rebels and enemies into his beloved children. Use any memory device you need to use that will remind you of this amazing, majestic, and humbling facet of the diamond of God's grace that saves from beginning to end. Spurgeon at one point uh, in a sermon, and I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, I think it's in the notes later, called this doctrine the children's call. And that reminded me of summertime when I was uh, very young, playing outside as a child near dinner time. You may have had experience with this same kind of call, perhaps from your own childhood. You were out playing in the neighborhood, and your mother called your name loudly for dinner. You knew her voice, and you responded. God's death-piercing call to his chosen ones, his children, is always responded to by coming home and enjoying new birth, transformation, and new eternal life. Some of the descriptives gifted teachers have labeled this truth. I listed them in your notes. Irresistible grace, efficacious grace, effectual calling and grace, spirit's effective call, overcoming grace, supernatural transformation. Whatever the label is, this is the fourth point of the doctrines of grace that we're going to cover. And here's my challenge. How can I possibly condense without dilution or distortion this great truth about God's grace that saves from beginning to end? I have to condense because even the small amount that I understand, which is just a small fraction of the whole truth, couldn't be presented if we were here for most of the day. The truths represented by this fourth point are immense, inexhaustible, inexpressibly beautiful. God help us. God help me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I solicit your anointing on ears to hear and the words that I speak. But Lord, I know from my own experience, it's not the words that I speak that matter. It's what you speak to the hearts of your gathered children that will penetrate, that will last, that will be absorbed, that will become part of their experience with you to enrich their appreciation of you so they can see and savor your beauty in all of its magnificence. 
Lord, we know that won't be fully true till we see you face to face. But we want to know you more. We want to know more about you and what you have done. So help us. Help me. In Jesus' name. We always want to resort to the standard that we've discussed for our study. We're going to go to God's Word. We're going to read a lot of Scripture this morning and look at just a few of the key passages of Scripture to support the doctrine of irresistible grace and effectual calling. And by the way, those two terms, irresistible grace, effectual calling, are just two ways to look at the same great truth. There's a lot more... embodied in those words, but those are the two main descriptives that I'll be referring to this morning. And and first I will address a few potential distractions that could be in your minds from your own study of Scripture or some teaching that you've heard. But before we get to the potential distractions, I want to identify the person of the Godhead who is at work in this effectual calling, this irresistible grace from beginning to end, in cooperation with the other members of the Trinity. The person at work here primarily is the Holy Spirit. The work of the Godhead, I think, can be looked at this way. Unconditional election that we studied in week three is the work of God the Father. It was the Father who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4, and many other passages of Scripture. Particular redemption, which Evan so ably presented to us last week, week four, was the work of God the Son. The ones for whom Jesus died were his sheep, John 10, 11. His bride, Ephesians 5, 25. His friends, John 15, 13. And a people for his own possession, in Paul's letter to Titus. And we're going to see this week that effectual calling, irresistible grace, is the work of God the Holy Spirit who calls, enlivens, regenerates, and opens our eyes to the beautiful truth of the gospel. But first let's address some potential distractions, and there will be more. I think Evan will probably deal with some more of those in a couple of weeks when he's dealing with problem texts or questions. The first is, and I put it in the form of a question, But people do resist. Irresistible grace, people do resist. Even God's people resist the Holy Spirit. And the reason I put it in the form of a question is because that may be a question in some of your minds. And if not in your minds, it may be a question that comes up when you discuss this issue with others who are God's people. And we want you to be prepared to answer that question by understanding why the fact that people have in the past and do in the present and will in the future resist the Holy Spirit, in fact, maybe you've resisted the Holy Spirit, perhaps even this morning, some conviction of what the Holy Spirit has encouraged you to do or not to do, something that God wants to show you. I hope no one here has resisted too strongly the Holy Spirit this morning, but you never know. John Piper addressed this issue this way in a little pamphlet or book he uh, entitled Five Points. He, He said, the doctrine of irresistible grace does not mean that every influence of the Holy Spirit cannot be resisted. It means 
that the Holy Spirit, whenever he chooses, and let me go back so you understand, God, the Holy Spirit, whenever he chooses, can overcome all resistance and make his influence irresistible. Now, my addition to what Pastor Piper has written, and I know he would agree from reading a lot of and listening to him, is that the Holy Spirit will always overcome all resistance and make his influence irresistible when it comes to drawing those chosen by God unconditionally from the foundation of the earth to be his children, his elect. You can see that even in Job 42.2. Of course, the Bible... Old and New Testaments provide many, many examples of people resisting, grieving, quenching the Holy Spirit's wooing. But this in no way contradicts God's sovereignty in any area. And for our purposes, it does not contradict God's sovereignty in the particular area of God's dealing with his elect. Since the doctrine that we studied in the second week of radical or total depravity is true, Pastor Piper also said, there can be no salvation without the reality of irresistible grace. Since we were dead in our sins and unable to submit to God because of our rebellious nature, we will never believe in Christ unless God overcomes our rebellion, our resistance. And the suggested resource, Doctrines of Grace, suggests that the words irresistible grace do not mean that God will drag us kicking and screaming into his kingdom, nor do they mean that grace is never resisted by us. Obviously it is. What they mean is that we do not resist effectively. Or to put it the other way around, they mean that when God calls us to faith in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, he calls us effectively, succeeding in his purpose to save us. Another potential distraction, and we could go on and on about this particular one, is but the question that, but what about my free will? Don't I have a free will to choose? Pardon my sniffles this morning from time to time, getting over uh, something. (laughs) For some, the distraction that arises in their minds when they consider this doctrine of irresistible grace or effectual calling is the quintessentially American thought. But don't we have free will? I'm a free person after all. Doesn't that mean we should be able to resist? Now, let me say first, I'm so glad that I did not have that ability to resist when God called me. When you listen to some teachers who oppose this doctrine, they almost raise their concept of free will to a divine or sacred level as though their concept of free will is so sacred that God would have no right to do anything against their free will. But my study tells me that no scriptural basis exists for this free will distraction in that sense. Don't elevate your thoughts or your ideas about free will to choose to a divine level above God by thinking that anyone naturally, naturally has the ability to choose to accept the drawing of God's Holy Spirit to salvation. That's not a natural thing. Remember Romans 8, 7 and 8 tells us that, and I quote, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot 
Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Left to our old, unregenerate nature, we will always use our freedom to resist God and rebel against His commands, including His commands to believe in the sacrifice of His Son at Calvary to be saved. That's what our natural ability would accomplish. Evan is going to address some of the passages of Scripture that are misused to support this unscriptural notion of free will. Right, Evan? Where are you? Yeah, okay. <clears throat> Some of this misuse is based on the argument that surely God would not command people to do something they have no power or ability to do. Well, that just makes sense, right? Those texts, however, properly understood in context, do not support the conclusion that an unregenerate person can, by his own volition, choose to be saved. In a teaching by Pastor Piper at one of his Wednesday night Bible studies that has been on, it's on tape, it's available, he used the illustration uh, of books that he had seen on the shelf with titles like, in a Christian bookstore, with titles like, How to Be Born Again. And he made the comment that such books were like writing a book to be read to an unborn fetus in the womb to instruct that fetus how to be born. It makes no sense. As I thought about this unscriptural concept of free will a couple weeks ago, three, the Lord, I think, impressed me with a series of rhetorical questions that I've put in your notes. They may be a little bit differently worded because I keep tweaking them, but I believe the Lord gave me this. Do you feel your sacred free will has been violated because God has opened your eyes to see the truth, to see the gospel, to see what is good and right for the first time? Do you feel your sacred free will has been violated by God's Holy Spirit opening your eyes for the first time for you to see and believe the truth of the gospel so that you're freed from the shackles of sin? Do you feel your sacred free will has been violated by God in His sovereign mercy and grace when He made your spirit alive for the first time? As all rhetorical questions do that I think has an obvious answer, at least for me, that kind of sacred free will I can do without. I would rather have a sovereign God. Yes. And the authors of our suggested resource proof in their own clever way, using the zombie analogy, uh, answered the free will issue this way. Spiritual zombies don't choose the gift of God's grace for the same reason that prison escapees don't show up voluntarily at police stations. It isn't because convicted felons are incapable of locating their lo local law enforcement agency. It's because the police represent everything the convict wants to avoid. Ever since our expulsion from Eden, every human being has been a convicted corpse on the run from God's reign. Apart from God's single-handed gift of resurrecting grace, no human being will ever seek God because a death-defeating king who demands that we find our greatest joy in his father's fame is repulsive to the spiritually dead. When the living God surveys the inhabitants of the earth, he doesn't discover multitudes of well-intended women and men trying to find their way into his kingdom. What he sees instead are hordes of the walking dead living with an inward inkling that God is real, but refusing to submit to his sovereign will. I don't have this in your notes, and I'm not going to 
I have the book down here, but I'm not going to take the time to read it. But there's an excellent, if you have uh, Grudem's <clears throat> Systematic Theology book, not the dumbed down one, the big one, uh, I, re- I commend to you page 700. And there's a paragraph near the end of page 700 in footnote 4 <coughs> in which he helpfully, as Grudem always does, I, it, it almost annoys me. He... he he presents these things in such a, um, how to say it, if not an, I like arguments. He presents these ways in a non, these issues in a non-argumentative way and gives you both sides of the story, but it's clear when you get to the end, he usually tells you, but it's clear whether he tells you or not what his position is. Well, that's true on page 700, and I commend that to you. Somebody's really interested, you can come up and read my book at the end of the class. And this, uh, but what about what seem to be two kinds of calls? And, and perhaps this is not so much a distraction as a potential confusion. In some passages of Scripture, it seems as though the call of the gospel is made to everyone who hears the gospel preached. In other passages, it appears as though when the gospel call is made, everyone responds. Perhaps the potential confusion, I think, is best captured by a note given to Pastor Spurgeon the week before a message that he preached entitled, Christ Crucified, February 11, 1855. And it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful message, but I, I don't have time to unpack all of it, but I, I read it all, but it was, it's a wonderful message I commend you read it. He was using as his text 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24, which we're going to probably touch on a little bit later. And Spurgeon shared this. He, was say, he said, I received a note this week asking me to explain that word called. Because in one passage, Matthew twenty-two fourteen, it says, many are called, but few are chosen. While in another, Romans eight thirty, and we're also going to try to unpack that a little bit this morning, It appears that all who are called must be chosen. Now let me observe that there are two calls. Two calls. And and I think this is very important for all of us to get our minds around. Two calls. As my old friend John Bunyan says, the hen has two calls. The common cluck, which she gives daily and hourly, and the special one, which she means for her little chickens. And Pastor Spurgeon goes on at some length to unpack that passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 1.24, to make it clear that the same general message can and does go out when the gospel is preached, clearly preached. But to some who hear that call, that message is a stumbling block or foolishness, while to others hearing the same message at the same time with the same backgrounds, They're called so that the call is heard as the power of God and the wisdom of God. They have a totally opposite reaction. We have to understand and explain that. R.C. Sproul describes these two calls as an outward call that can be heard by anyone within range of the preaching and the inward call that is invincible. And the invincibility comes from the source of this inward call. He wrote... Far from a mere enticement, God's effectual call on the human soul derives from the power source of omnipotence. 
The same power that called the world into existence out of nothing is now exercised in our redemption. As God calls the world into being out of nothing, so he calls us to saving faith out of nothing. Just like Jesus standing at the tomb of Lazarus after he's four days dead. He was coming out of that tomb. We are to be the means of the outward call. And the outward call is a necessary means which should, which that truth should motivate, encourage, and drive all of us into the work of the Great Commission. In our sphere of influence, wherever we are, that should drive us into that work. But only God the Holy Spirit can and does issue the effectual inward call without which those who hear the gospel will remain dead, blind, and lost. The effect of this effectual inward call is new life, real change, and opened eyes that for the first time see and savor the beauty of the gospel. But what does Scripture say? I've uh, addressed some of the potential distractions or possible confusion, but now let's examine what Scripture has to say about irresistible grace, the effectual call. And the question we will need to answer for ourselves from Scripture this morning is, and I'm sure this bothers, I know this bothers some of you. I've heard it in your questions after the class. Why? If the gospel is freely offered to all men, as it is, do some respond to it and are saved while others reject it and are lost? Why? Unfortunately, many have been taught, as Arminius taught, that this is because of something that is pre-existing in every individual. And therefore, the individual's contribution is ultimately determinative of his or her own destiny. We believe, to the contrary, that it is God who solely determines to initiate and consummate this grace that saves from beginning to end. God's sovereign grace. And we need to examine Scripture to see if it teaches that God's grace extends an effective inward call to God's elect that works irresistibly and selectively. The first key text that we're going to, and this is a long text, and I apologize. We could even start in chapter 6, verse 22. We really could start before that. But I've, I've limited it to quite a few verses here, and I want us to read it carefully together. And uh, I'll explain what some of the underlining that I hope you can see in, in, in the copy that you have there uh, provides. Beginning in verse 35, John chapter 6. I'm going to put this in context after I read it. I, I thought about that. Maybe I should put it in context before, but let's do it the way I have prepared to do it. John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone 
who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. It's almost as though, let me just interject. It's almost as when you're reading this, it's almost as though they were listening to him and they were trying to find a flaw, trying to find something to pick about. So they didn't even, it's almost like they didn't even hear what he had just said. Okay, but be that as it may, they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from, actually, they didn't know his father. Let me start there. Okay. How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone, I keep emphasizing that, everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your father ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, he's explaining, come on, guys, you're used to things being said in metaphors, and you understand that method of teaching, and they did, by the way. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He's repeating himself. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living Father sent me. And I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. It's just kind of a little parenthetical that John's throwing in there. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, by the way, he's using disciples there in the broad sense, all those who were following him at that point. There were a lot of them. We'll get back to the context in a minute. Go back and find my place. (laughs) Okay. Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. They knew that already. This whole thing about being confused. Oh, he's really going to give his flesh? He's going to cut off a piece? No. They knew that's not what he was saying. He was talking in terms of the Spirit, and they knew it. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. By the way, there are two things going on there. Who it was broadly who would not believe and the one who had been called as one of the twelve who would betray him. 
And he said, this is why I told you. He gives them the reason why. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, again, we could have read more, but let me just put the, in, do a little effort of putting this in context. Just before this teaching session to those following him, this teaching session took place in the synagogue at Capernaum. The day before this, Jesus had fed the 5,000 men, 15 to 20,000 people, starting with five barley loaves and two fish. These same people saw that happen. They participated in that. He left that crowd because he perceived their desire to take him by force and make him king. They were obviously impressed by his miracle-working power. The next day, the crowd caught up with him in Capernaum, and our passage of Scripture comes from his teaching them in the synagogue at Capernaum. Keep in mind, those who were interacting with him in the passage and interrogating him, asking him to perform still more signs, had been part of the 5,000 men and others that he had fed the day before. And at least 12 or 13 times, I may, you can count for yourself, in, in this passage, in several different ways, Jesus made the invitation to believe, to come, to eat, to drink, to feed, to hear, to learn, or to look on and believe what Jesus is saying, with a resulting promise of eternal life. How many different ways could Jesus say it? And in case they did not understand, Jesus made it plain he was speaking in spiritual terms. And these promises of eternal life were made to whoever, anyone, everyone. The conditions were clear. The audience knew what he was talking about. All of them heard the same message. But notice this. And I've double underlined these words in verses 36. You have seen me, yet do not believe. Verse 39, I should lose nothing of all he has given me. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. In verse 65, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Could there be any clearer message from Scripture? Right out of Jesus' mouth? Hardly. It is clear that Jesus' listeners in the synagogue at Capernaum ought to believe, right? They ought to believe. But it is also clear that the only ones who can believe are those who have been drawn, called, enlivened, taught, and given by the cooperative work of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. For anyone any, whoever, all, and everyone who believes, who comes, who feed, who drink, or who can really look on the sun will be accepted and raised up on the last day. There's a lot of implication in that, some of which we'll get into next week. Volumes have been written on the truths of this passage. Let me end with Bruce Ware's summary from Still Sovereign. I've often come to the conclusion that maybe the best thing I could do, but I'm not sure it would make it as accessible. I hope I'm making it somewhat accessible to you. 
if you read, I, I'm tempted just to get some of these books and just keep you here for about five hours and read to you. And, and maybe it seems to some of you like that's what I'm doing. Then, okay, that's fine. Because others have said this far more effectively than I'm able to. And this is Bruce Ware's summary after he spends many pages expositing this text. He says, first, all of those drawn to Christ by the Father do in fact come and are in fact saved. Any, uh, the scripture references are embodied in your text. Second, only those drawn to Christ by the Father can in fact come. Both of these points are derived directly from Jesus' own teaching within the context of continued unbelief. Now, if all of those drawn do come, first point, the drawing that causes them to come must be effectual. If it were not effectual, Jesus could not rightly and explicitly say as he does that all those drawn, in other words, given to the Son, come, and all those drawn will be raised up. Furthermore, if only those drawn can come, the second point, then surely the drawing of God is selective. There's no point in telling disbelieving people who supposedly already are drawn by the Father that they must be drawn in order to come. Rather, to make sense of Jesus' analysis of the persistent disbelief surrounding him, his affirmations that only those drawn by the Father can come must signify the selective nature of the Father's drawing. Apart from this selective drawing, belief is impossible and the continued unbelief faced by Jesus is thereby explained. The calling of God on individuals' lives to salvation is effectual, thwarting all unbelieving resistance and drawing them irresistibly to belief in the Christ who will not fail to save them utterly. The second key text that I want us to address is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. We've already been into this text in prior weeks for different points. This is a shorter text than the John text, so hopefully it won't take quite as long. But vital proof of irresistible grace and effectual calling are clearly found in this text. Verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. He's speaking here to the believers in the church of Corinth. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. By the way, I just thought of this. He's not saying none of you. He's saying not many of you. Just notice that. So there are some who, according to worldly, he's not a discriminator is what I'm trying to say. God is not a discriminator. He does pick some. It's just harder for those who are rich and wise and in their own, you know, it's harder. <laughs> but, and, and he does, I think he limits those numbers because otherwise he'd, men would boast. Anyway, back to the text. I'm adding to the text. 
Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We're back to the question we started with, and I'm behind time. Why, if the gospel is freely offered to all men as it is, some respond to it and are saved, while others reject it and are lost? I hope the answer is becoming from Scripture clearer and clearer. But one thing is undeniable. As we read verse 24 of this first chapter of 1 Corinthians, we see here a powerful and God-honoring example of God's calling that is effectual, irresistible, and selective. Why do some consider the gospel or the message of the cross to be folly, foolishness, while others hearing the same gospel consider it God's power and wisdom? Why does the same gospel elicit two opposite responses? Now, of course, we can say that those who are saved are those who believe, and that would be absolutely correct. But that does not answer why some Jews and some Gentiles who hear the exact same message preached believe, but others do not. Even though they're from the same culture, have the same familiarity with the things of God, the only logical answer is that Jews and Gentiles who are called see the preaching of the cross to be the power and wisdom of God, while those not called see the preaching to be weakness and foolishness. In a letter written to the same church, we see a parallel. Somebody praying this morning somewhat alluded to this passage. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16 is somewhat parallel, but it's using a different metaphor. Paul describes the knowledge of Christ, in other words, the gospel, as a fragrance, as an aroma. To some, those being saved, it is the aroma of life. But for those perishing, it is the aroma of death. Same fragrance. But some people smell one thing while others smell something that is the opposite. Once again, after a lengthy unpacking of this text, Bruce, Bruce Ware summarizes what it teaches us. And in the interest of time, I'm going to let you read that quote from Bruce Ware. It's an excellent summary of, of an exposition of this passage. Let me get to the, three, the third key text. Romans 8, 29 and 30. Again, we've been here before. We should be able to finish the class a few minutes late, but close. We'll see. Verse 29, Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And verse 30 contains almost everything. <laughs> and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Just look at verse 30 alone. Everything is there. Once a person is described by one of those descriptives, then all of those descriptives apply. 
Ware puts it this way, all the individuals spoken of in 8, 29, and 30 are foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. None is foreknown that is not predestined. None is predestined that is not called. And none is called that is not both justified and glorified. That's a clear reading of the text. This is not referring to the general call by the preaching of the gospel that is referred to here in verse 30. Because if it were then all people everywhere, without exception, who heard the gospel would be justified and glorified. And we know from numerous other scriptures, including those we considered, who considered the gospel to be weakness and foolishness that we just looked at, they cannot believe. Their free will can't do it. Even our key text in the first chapter, in 1 Corinthians, just disproved the thought that they could choose absent the Holy Spirit's work. They can't. They cannot. Every time I say that, I get that K-N-O-T in my mind. This double knot. <laughs> Cannot. Can you see perhaps, and this might have missed your attention or maybe not, but it jumped out at me. The greatest benefit to those who are the called of God that is taught in this wonderful chain of Romans 8, 29, and 30. To really see this, just reflect back on verse 28 the great cavern of comfort for those who are called. I dare say most of you, if not everyone in this room, know this verse by heart. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, praise God. It becomes perfectly clear when we read to the end of verse 31 and the end of chapter 8 that God will not allow or permit anything at all to hinder his ultimate and his good purposes for those he has called. It will all happen. There are many other key texts in the scripture to prove to us that this great doctrine of irresistible grace and effectual calling are true. Just two, and I put them in your notes. We're not going to unpack them or try to today, but I encourage you to study out on your own. A 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, and 1 John 5, 1. Then, in closing, let's get back to the question we began this morning with. Why? If the gospel is freely offered to all men, as it is, some respond to it and are saved, while others reject it and are lost. Don't look for anything really uh, don't look for any wisdom from this man's mouth that will fully answer that question. The answer is in the sovereign God, not in us. And while that is very humbling, it's also very comforting when we believe and then pursue God's purposes to go and to preach and to teach and to witness because we know he will produce a harvest of his people from every tribe, nation, language. We are the means and a necessary means because God ordained us to be necessary means, by the way, not because there's anything in us. But we're not the cause. 
And we're also comforted to know that the almighty, sovereign God is holding us in his hands from which we cannot be plucked away. We are secure because God finishes what he started before the foundation of the earth. More about that next week. Heavenly Father, I am and sense clearly that I am totally inadequate to do anything that would make anyone see and understand these great truths in the depth that they, they are. But I see in them, Lord, I see in this great truth a beauty that I want to worship from the bottom of my heart, and I do worship from the bottom of my heart. I'm so glad that it was not me who made some choice and that somehow turned your head. I'm so glad because I know I would have never made the right choice. I would have never done the right thing. I'm glad, Lord, that you moved on me and called me in a way that I could not resist, in a way that was effective, in a way that accomplished your purposes. And Lord, as we go forth, may we understand that it is those purposes that we're to be about and your grace is available to support us in those purposes because they're your purposes. And we just want to enjoy them and the benefits of them and the comfort that there is in knowing that all things do work together for those who are called according to your purposes. Thank you, Lord, for this great truth. In Jesus' name, amen.